0: Hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, What's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, we welcome you to the Disaster Discussions podcast where we explore the intersection of weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody, and want to thank you for your response so far to our podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Let me just catch you up on uh, what you've missed, if you've missed anything. We hope you haven't. But first episode, we spoke with Dr. Sarah Kapnick, who is the chief scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, we talked climate change and its role in recent extreme weather events we've seen. Our second episode, we talked about hail research with Dr. Ian Jamanco of IBHS and with Dr. Julian Brimelow of the Northern Hail Project in Canada. And then for our third episode, we did something a little different. We released a series of episodes from the Severe Local Storms Conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So hopefully you've had a chance to check all of those out Uh, Make sure you tune in, subscribe, leave us really positive reviews. We'd greatly appreciate that as well. All for the good of science right here on the Disaster Discussions podcast. So please do that for us. It would sure mean a lot. Well, as we get ready for this edition of the Disaster Discussions podcast, here's a question. How do emergency managers relay critical information to the public in advance of a severe weather event? What more can be done to prepare and empower individuals to act during these events to ensure life safety? As we tape this, we're taping it on the last day of hurricane season. And with hurricane season now in our rearview mirror, what have we seen when it comes to progress in these areas and what lessons in preparedness messaging and mitigation can we take away? Well, to answer these questions for us, we bring in former director of NOAA's Hurricane Center, and current hurricane expert at the Weather Channel, Dr. Rick Nabb, to discuss these topics and more. Dr. Nab, thank you so much for being with us on the Disaster Discussions podcast.
1: Armand, thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on this fantastic new podcast. I'm thrilled that you're doing it and hope that it continues to grow. And uh, we all have so much to learn from every past disaster and all the work we're trying to do uh, to keep people safe in future ones.
0: Thank you for being with us, and uh, we greatly appreciate uh, your presence and your expertise uh, towards this conversation. And uh, as we as we get going here, Dr. Knapp, let's talk a little bit about your career track, because it's, it's pretty fascinating. So you are the director of the Hurricane Center at NOAA for almost nine years, then to the Weather Channel then back to NOAA for five years, and then back to the Weather Channel where you've been for the last five years. Describe the journey. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Describe the journey and how the two positions compare.
1: Well, to, to sum it up, uh, everywhere I've lived, I've liked so much I've lived there twice, right? <laughs> you know, I've gone back and forth. But, but it's all been part of the same team. Uh, I've always been, going back to childhood, fascinated with hurricanes and wanted to do something about it. Uh, to help my family, to help myself, to help others. And so it's always been uh, an interest in the science and the forecasting, but also getting people ready before, during, and after hurricanes. And so uh, whether it's been a forecaster at the Hurricane Center or uh, a broadcaster at the Weather Channel, uh, it's all been part of the same goal, which is to uh, get people ready way in advance of hurricanes and other perils and, and talk them through it, get them through it. And then importantly, as we're learning as the years go by, how much we have to do after these disasters uh, to, uh, to recover and to get ready for the next one. And, and Armand, a lot of this goes to my own personal experiences, preparing for dealing with and recovering from hurricanes. I've experienced some of the same challenges within my own family, with my own uh, extended family, my friends, uh, my communities, we've struggled to get ready for and to endure and to recover from hurricanes and other disasters. And so it all really comes from the heart, you know, it's about what, is my, what has my personal observation been, my personal experience been, and that's what I take into the job because ultimately everything we're doing with forecasting disaster resilience is a, is a personal issue, right? We're trying to help individuals and families.
0: Very well said. And it's certainly uh, the the, purpose and your passion for uh, disaster discussions and disaster resilience, as you said, it's pretty evident with the the track that your career has taken.
1: And a a lot of what I have done over the last few years has increasingly been interacting with people other than meteorologists. I I have, in large uh, increases over the last several years, spent a lot more time interacting with the disaster resilience community. People of all different kinds of expertise and uh, abilities and perspectives, uh, engineers and people in the insurance industry and emergency managers and social scientists. And that, to me, is what has made my career so rewarding for me and has, has shown me that we all have to work together, all of us with all these different areas of expertise, because none of the disciplines that all of us went to school for and are represented in our job titles can solve all of this on our own.
0: Let's drive down that street a little bit. Uh, we have a ton to get to, but let's drive down that street a little bit more. What have you learned from these combinations of groups of people that you've spoken with? And, and it really does sort of tie in with the mission and the purpose of IBHS, but share some of the observations that you have from the different and diverse groups of people you've spoken with over the past few years.
1: Well, in general, uh, I've learned a lot about human nature, right? Uh, We as a society uh, are still struggling to break the habit of being reactive instead of proactive, right? Doing things before a disaster ever strikes so that the impacts of that disaster are less and so that we can be resilient. We can recover both physically and emotionally and financially after these disasters, but as a society, we still to this day, although I think we're getting better in a lot of areas, we still tend to not do everything we need to do beforehand because we kind of hope the problem away or we just don't think it can happen to us. I've learned a lot about messaging and human nature uh, from social scientists, and I've also learned from engineers and experts who aren't meteorologists uh, that there is so much we can do to make structure stronger. There's so much we can do to recover more quickly, and we don't have to let the atmosphere and other perils dictate the outcome. We're in charge of the outcome to a large extent, depending upon what we do ahead of time, individually, as families, as businesses, as a society. So uh, I think to sum it up, I've learned from all these folks that if we work together and pool our expertise and our resources and get everybody on board with all the things that we can do, we can take control of the outcomes and not let disasters control us.
0: Dr. Nabj, a man after my own heart because we at IBHS talk so much about the fact that we are not powerless when it comes to mother nature. Can you just sort of put some meat on that bone in particular? I know since we're on this street, we may as well keep walking around and looking at houses. Just tell me about the importance of helping us as a society understand that we are not powerless against the ends and the mother nature, uh, the events that mother nature can bring.
1: Well, we'll just think of the comparisons that we've done between different uh, homes and different communities uh, in similar disasters, but where the outcomes were different, not because the storm was so much different, but because how a house was built was so much different. You know, uh, uh, Federal Lines for Safe Homes did that uh, tale of two homes uh, back in uh, the day after Charlie and uh, and after hurricanes and tornadoes, uh, for example. When we look at aerial coverage, and then we say, "Wow, the, the damage looks so random. This house." was obliterated and this house is still standing. Look how random the atmosphere is. No, it usually has to do with how differently the structures were built. And I think we're seeing the aftermath of disasters differently through that lens and realizing, aha, if we build differently, then we're the ones who can make the outcome different. And it's not random. Uh, It's predictable. It is avoidable uh to have uh you know communities completely wiped out and uh, you know, that's just from the wind perspective but if you look at at flooding you know there's a lot of things that have been done to lessen our impacts from flooding from small changes people make to their homes and to their communities to just just look at the uh, risk reduction system around new orleans that was built post katrina that saved us from another Katrina flooding disaster in Ida because we actually have the ability to build against these storms so the outcome was much different because we controlled it now that was a 15 billion dollar fix not every community can do that but it shows uh, that uh, even on the small scale uh, you know, I have even done small changes to my home over the years that have saved me a lot of money. And one of the best examples that I've ever seen is when I was at IBHS and you guys showed me taping the seams between the, the roof, mm-hmm. right, the, the the pieces of plywood. And just by taping those seams, you can, and which is not very expensive compared to the damage that it can prevent, uh, you, you really start to learn that by spending a little bit of money or a little bit of effort, ahead of time, you save yourself so much money, so much damage, so much heartache later on. So we we see it uh, that there are tangible ways that are well within reach that we can lessen the impacts of disasters.
0: I wanna use Dr. Nabb, I wanna use Hurricane Ian really as the example here to continue our discussion. And before we get into this more deeply, I wanna add that our hearts are obviously still with the families who lost loved ones and who are still rebuilding and recovering uh, after after Ian. But you mentioned Hurricane Charlie and there were some comparisons made with Hurricane Charlie back in 2004 and Hurricane Ian, which, of course, made landfall in Florida as a cat four. Uh, tell me about why Ian was so different from Charlie from from your meteor meteorological expertise.
1: Uh, the, The short answer is the horizontal size of Ian was so much larger than uh, Charlie which was pretty pretty small okay and if you take a hurricane and you move it along the same path and but it's a a lot larger then you have a much different outcome so one thing that I think probably happened with uh, the landfall of Ian is that a lot of people thought, well, I got through Charlie okay, and so I can get through this one. But in places like Fort Myers Beach, you got the radius of maximum winds into Fort Myers Beach, and that maximized the storm surge there, whereas in Charlie with much smaller, the radius of maximum winds was a lot farther up the coast. Totally different outcome in terms of who got the strongest winds, who got the devastating storm surge. And that's all because of the horizontal size. So you can take the same category on the wind scale, the same path um, and get a totally different outcome because of the horizontal size. And that is what made the difference uh, in a place like Fort Myers Beach with the devastating storm
0: surge. Do you find, Dr. Nab, that maybe other meteorologists or even ordinary Joes, when it comes to hurricanes, are we always sort of looking to compare one storm to another and why is that a a good thing or a bad thing touch on that for me
1: yeah it can be both Armand it is it's human nature to utilize our experience to help us understand what to do with the current situation or future situations we might be facing, but that can be a double-edged sword. Uh, It is certainly good to look to history to understand your vulnerabilities. I mean, we know, we've known for decades that Southwest Florida is very vulnerable to storm surge. Okay, knowing that and really facing the reality of what can happen can be two different things. And, So even though you know and you've heard, okay, I'm in southwest Florida, we're very vulnerable to storm surge because of how shallow the gulf waters are and the the concave shape of our coastline and all that. Okay, I know that, I've heard it. But then, at the same time, we use our experience. Well, I got through Irma, I got through Charlie, uh, I got through Donna, I've been here for decades and it's never been that bad. I know storms. I can deal with these storms and I don't need to evacuate. You know, that was one line of reasoning we heard a lot of people uh, express. And that's where experience gets us because especially with uh, relatively infrequent disasters locally, like hurricanes, every storm is different. And you can live someplace for decades and never experience a storm like the one you're facing right now. And so um, I think sometimes our experience gets us in a bad way that way, every storm is unique. And just because it hasn't happened to you, I mean, yeah, you know, all the time, you put a microphone in some, in front of somebody who has just been through a disaster and we we know what we all say, right? Never thought it could happen to me. It's never been this bad. I've lived here for decades and it can't happen. But, you know, as a wise person once told me, the definition of a disaster is a series of unlikely events, right? <laughs> so if you don't think it can happen to you, That's that's the mindset that gets us into trouble.
0: Now, how does that mindset affect how you message and communicate the importance and the significance of protecting yourself and being ready? How does that mindset in some cases maybe even hinder the effectiveness of your job, whether it's as the hurricane expert at the Weather Channel or as uh, the hurricane center Director at NOAA. How do those mindsets come into play for your job as a communicator?
1: Well, you know, communication, as we all know, is a a two way street. Communication isn't successful unless the, you know, not only is the message given, but then the message has to be received and then it has to be acted upon. And that's when communication really has happened. And so to accomplish all that, I, I will admit, is not an easy task on the topic that you're mentioning. You know, convincing people to do things proactively to prevent bigger disasters down the line has proven to be a challenge. And just look at all the different things that we're still not as good at as we would like to be. Uh, When it comes to evacuation, it's still hard to get people to plan ahead of time for evacuations, know their evacuation zone, to figure out where they're gonna go and how they're gonna get there if they're ever told to evacuate. Look at how challenging it has been and remains To be to get people insured for flood ahead of time not just because oh the flood insurance system is a mess and i don't even know what to do no it it, there's this huge insurance gap when it comes to flood a lot of it has to do with people not knowing that they're at risk for flood or not knowing that it's a separate policy or being told they don't need it Uh, so there's a lot we have to break through but uh to encapsulate all of that uh is it's Human nature to not want to deal with a disaster uh, in advance. You know, we, we don't. You know, if if we worried every day about what would happen to us and that dictates our lives, we'd be basket cases, right? I mean, you have to get on with your life. You have to do things, but somewhere along the line, you gotta you gotta carve out some time and some resources, but not as much as you might think, to take steps to be insured, to have a plan, to build better, to make small improvements to your home so that you're not only preventing a physical disaster, you're not only increasing your own life safety, but you're lessening the financial disaster afterwards. But I don't have all the answers to how to get everybody to change their mindset in that regard. But this podcast, what we talk about every year on Weather Channel, uh, these conversations need to need to be ramped up. We need to talk about this more often and as a country, as a society, be more proactive and be less reactive if If somebody has all the answers on how to fix that mindset and get us to act more proactively before disasters uh
0: i'm all ears, but uh we're all doing our part to try to change that It is indeed a very critical matter, uh, and it's why podcasts like these and all the work you do at the Weather Channel are so necessary. I want to talk about storm surge because it was a term used quite often as it is with many hurricanes obviously but with hurricane ian there was a different uh, emphasis on storm surge and as of 2017 you know this storm surge has its own watch and warning yeah. but explain yeah. storm surge and its importance uh, the importance of storm surge watches and warnings and also help us understand why some emergency managers may still be struggling with understanding and explaining storm surge.
1: And a lot of people in general are still struggling to fully understand the power of storm surge and exactly what it is and what they need to do about it. Now, some of what I'm going to say is admittedly self-serving because when I was at the Hurricane Center as the director from 2012 to 2017, most of what I worked on during that time frame was developing with a lot of other people involved at the Hurricane Center and the Weather Service, getting new storm surge watches and warnings, products, training, and outreach and education out there. And, you know, as of 2017, you know, no longer can you say storm surge came without warning, you know, in EN, because there was a watch and a warning up uh, starting a few days in advance. But it's one thing to institute a new storm surge watch and warning, these new storm surge flooding maps, uh, but we still haven't gotten to the point where everybody's doing everything they can to fully utilize those. So there's there's so much to do. First is realizing, you know, those of us who talk about storm surge and have spent a lot of time thinking about it, we assume, okay, we've gotten the word out, everybody knows what it is, but I, I still don't think people realize what storm surge is. It is the salt water from the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean being pushed onto normally dry ground by the winds of a hurricane or a winter storm. And that water can come onto normally dry ground and go not just blocks, but miles inland. And it can be not just a few feet, but several feet high. And it can be moving and it can not just get structures wet, but it can obliterate them, take them out. People don't realize how heavy and damaging and destructive and deadly water can be. But then, also, people don't even realize that they're vulnerable to it. We still, as a society, haven't done a good enough job, you know, making sure everybody knows if they live in a place that storm surge could ever happen. You know, do I live in a storm surge evacuation zone? Not everybody knows the answer to that. You got to find that out. And then once you know that, then you got to figure out what's your plan. You know, where are you going to go? How are you going to get there if told to evacuate? And then. If you're told to evacuate is another big question that Ian brought forward because emergency managers haven't fully utilized the new storm surge watch and warning, the new uh, flood maps from the Hurricane Center, the briefings the Hurricane Center gives in real time, all the training the Hurricane Center offers to emergency managers uh, in advance of these events. I, I'm convinced those resources were not fully utilized. Too many emergency managers still talking a lot about, well, well you are inside the cone, we're outside the cone. They've got better tools than that now. So. Uh, There's a lot we need to do in every discipline, every family, every individual, every professional to learn more about what Storm Church can do, what are the tools you can bring to bear to anticipate where could happen and when. But then finally, Armand, here's the big thing that I think is the number one lesson learned from the 2022 hurricane season, and that is we have to do everything we can to get everybody out because the only way to ensure your survival from storm surge is to not be there when it happens but we still don't have sufficient evacuation compliance from people who have the ability to evacuate and importantly we're not providing enough evacuation assistance to people who don't have the resources or the ability to get themselves out we have a lot of work to do when it comes to saving lives with storm surge we've we, we learned this year the hard way that the storm surge watch and warning did not fix the whole problem with saving lives from storms hurts We lost a lot of people in that hazard this year.
0: So what should that assistance look like, Dr. Now, based on your years of expertise uh, as a hurricane expert at the Weather Channel and your years of experience at NOAA, what should this assistance, this evacuation assistance look like in these areas from, from a hurricane Ian you know, or whatever the next storm might be?
1: Well, in general, we need to start thinking of evacuation and the resources applied to it before the hurricane makes landfall and apply those resources to the same level that resources are applied after the hurricane for the recovery, for debris removal, for uh, sheltering, for food, for power restoration. I mean, just think about the army of power restoration trucks that comes into a region after hurricane. I would like to see an army of evacuation buses coming into communities before a hurricane strikes, because we can't just issue evacuation instructions and just assume everybody's got it. You know, you know evacuate when told to do so it doesn't quite cut it. There are too many people who don't have the financial resources, don't have transportation, have health uh, issues that need help getting out. And we need to apply those resources ahead of time and make it a an easy thing compared compared to now. Evacuation will never be easy, but make it easier than it is now for people to get out. We got to get everybody out. And you know, from a personal perspective, you know, I experienced this uh, in Charlie, 2004. My grandmother, my elderly grandmother, living in the Fort Myers area in a mobile home, and uh, we told her hey, you you can't be in that mobile home for this hurricane. You got to get out. And then she said, okay, I've got a friend who's going to come get me. And then when the hurricane was approaching from the Hurricane Center operations floor, I called my grandmother just to make sure she got out. I just wanted to make sure she got out. Everything was okay. And I let her phone ring for a while because she often took her time to answer the phone. But when she finally picked it up, I thought, grandma, what are you still doing there? Well, my friend couldn't come get me. They had a conflict or something came up. And And my heart sunk because I realized that unless this hurricane changes its path, my grandmother's gonna be in her mobile home in the middle of a major hurricane. And from that point forward, we as a family decided we're going to go get her out. And that's what we did in the 2005 hurricane season. So we we have to go get people out, not just leave them to their own uh, uh, devices when they lack the resources and the ability. So I think that's what it can look like I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's cheap. But if we can afford all this stuff that we do after a hurricane, we can afford to save some lives by applying more resources for evacuation ahead of time and helping one another out to get out ahead
0: of time. Preparation is so so important, and um, and you make the point. I mean, and you've been consistent throughout. We've got to be more proactive, and not reactive. That that point is so critical. To the work that you do and the work that we do here at IBHS, the, pre- the preparation that's needed and necessary when these storms occur, that is so vital to life life, and property safety.
1: It, it absolutely is. And if you're thinking, well, okay, I don't personally deal with hurricanes or I don't have a, a great risk of disasters where I am. well, well yeah, Disasters can happen anywhere. We all have to adopt this mindset for our own personal and family and uh, safety. But there are different professions that have touch points with the public that can have a tremendous influence and so uh, not just meteorologists and more of us in the meteorology community need to do more of this not just focus you know a lot of uh, historically a lot of meteorologists over the years say my job is to forecast my job isn't to you know convince people uh, what to do i get the forecast out there and then they're going to do what they're going to do but i think meteorologists can do a lot more even more than we've been doing with the help of social scientists to hone our preparedness messaging in a way that's more actionable and more inclusive and more understanding of the challenges that people are facing. Emergency managers, I think, can do a lot more to publicize their evacuation zones. So people are starting to think about evacuation long before the hurricane is on their doorstep. And I would call upon insurance professionals, especially those who have the direct interaction or the opportunity to have direct interaction with their policyholders, You really dedicate yourselves to meeting with your policyholders every year and having that insurance checkup and educating yourselves about the flood insurance issue. And let's all get on board with this notion that if it can rain where you live, it can flood where you live. Because Armand, even I uh, and other friends that I've talked to have been told by some of our insurance uh, agents over the years, well, you don't need flood insurance. But now I demand it, even if I'm told I don't need it. Uh, Now, everybody's got a different perspective on this, but I think we all need to uh, be telling people, the policyholders, more about the risks of flood so that they can get insured for that hazard. And uh, that could go a long way to helping people recover financially uh, from these disasters. But we, we still have this tremendous gap in flood insurance coverage i I feel like we're just spinning our wheels not making any progress to get people insured for flood and uh, we all need to do more to make that happen
0: i want to stay with that because obviously we're ibhs and it's the insurance institute for business and home safety let's talk to the insurance industry what else do you need uh, from the insurance industry to, to be a part of this move when it comes to messaging and preparedness, what else do you want to see from the insurance industry?
1: Uh, in various forms, more outreach and education to the consumer directly from insurance people, because you know, sometimes, and I'm sure a lot of folks are doing that. I've I've had insurance agents over the years, uh, not all of them, but some who have contacted me and say, "Hey, it's time for your annual checkup," or "Hey, you know, you might want to revisit your coverages because we haven't talked in a while." Um, But I think in general, uh, I would like to see more uh, insurance folks doing more direct outreach and education to the consumer, whether that is public service announcements or uh, mailings to the consumer or emails, of course, nowadays, um, social media posts, anything that gives individuals and families and businesses tangible things that they need to do at least once a year to make sure that they're fully insured because uh, <clears throat> if, if meteorologists like me go on television and say, you know, go do your insurance checkup. You know, a lot of people see me say that on television. They're gonna roll their eyes and go, yeah, NAB's a hurricane guy. He's obsessed with this stuff. Uh, yeah, 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 he's gonna talk about making me go to my insurance agent every year. Okay, but if, it, but if a trusted known insurance professional who has already interacted with the consumer and is a trusted professional in that area says to a person to an individual you know if it can rain where you live it can flood where you live are you covered for flood you know if you were to revisit your insurance coverages you might be able to find ways to save on your premiums and lessen the chance of damage that's good for me and for you Uh, if, if we hear those things as consumers directly from insurance folks about insurance i think the trust factor goes way up and i think the insurance folks have a lot more power to uh, you know ensure resilience in this country than they even realize. I, mean, I know they know what they're doing is important but it's even more important than you might realize in terms of what you can do with outreach and education and if, if I could wave magic wand every person in this country would get a call or an email or a text from an insurance professional at least once a year to say hey let's talk we need to review your coverages.
0: Not just the message but the messenger is vital yes. as well as what you're saying.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and, and it's all about really, uh, if, if people hear, social scientists have taught me this, uh, if people hear the same message multiple times from multiple sources, they're more likely to believe it and to act upon it. So if I'm telling people on television, you need to do an insurance checkup, and then an the emergency manager is saying, hey, while you are planning for evacuation, go get your insurance checkup. And then the insurance agent says, time for your insurance checkup. People will start to hear it more, more consistently. Oh, okay. And social norming becomes a, a thing. Oh, we're all hearing about this. Uh, we need to be doing this. Make it, make it, make it uncool to not get your insurance checkup. Right. <laughs> you make it cool to be doing that? But I think the pull from professionals Uh, to do things like that, like get your insurance checkup, like find out your evacuation zone, like identify small inexpensive things to make your home stronger that could save you from a lot of damage and heartache later. Uh, All of these things, uh, if people hear them more often from all of us, if we're all on the same page, then I think we can start to steer that ship in the right direction.
0: Dr. Nav, we've been talking about some of the growth areas from a communication standpoint, from a messaging standpoint, from Ian. Were there any things that you've looked at and have been looking at and you said to yourself, that was done relatively well? Is there anything that we take away and say, you know what? Obviously, there's always room for improvement, but from a messaging standpoint, a communication standpoint, that was done relatively well.
1: Well, the fortified program, I think, is a prime example of that. We need to do a lot more of that. Uh, you know, as much as that has accomplished, and as much as that has been discussed and promoted, let's make it even more famous, right? Uh, because the the whole idea that you can build stronger and you can uh, not just meet but exceed building codes, and you can do all this in, an, in a in a within reach, affordable way, in all kinds of different communities, uh, is uh, you know, something we need to keep repeating and turning into action. Another example is, um, you know, the the improvements in the building codes in in Florida post Andrew. You know, that is that's a good story, uh, and I think we've seen some of that play out in some of the structures that have not been as damaged as they otherwise might have been in Florida in recent hurricanes. But Then I'm going to pick on some of my uh, friends in Texas because I used to live there, right? I live in Houston uh, during junior high and high school. My mom still lives in the Houston area. And you still don't have people in in, uh, southeast Texas with hurricane shutters. You still don't have um, everybody around the country uh, getting flood insurance. We're still way less than 50% on that. So as much as we've made progress on getting the word out about flood insurance, we still have most people that don't have it. Uh, So we've made some progress in terms of flood mitigation, but not enough communities are participating in the community rating system and doing things to make their flood insurance premiums go down. So just about everything when it comes to building codes, when it comes to building stronger, when it comes to insuring people, we've made progress in all those areas, no doubt, but we still have a long way to go. And one last example that I can't uh, get out of my mind is this whole program about Turn Around, Don't Drown to keep people from driving their cars onto water-covered roads. Tremendous success in getting that message out, but still too many people still do it. They still drive their cars to their death sometimes onto water-covered roads. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is there's been a lot of of things that have been done uh, with life safety and disaster resilience and recovery and insurance and so forth, but we can't stop and we have to keep reinventing things and trying new things and making progress because there are still a lot of ways in which we are nowhere near as resilient
0: as we need to be. And really, to use your illustration from earlier, we have so many tools in the toolbox now that Mm -hmm. there really isn't any excuse for us to not be making that progress in these areas.
1: Especially given that we are all so connected now, right? Um, that we, we could be filling up social media with so much more information along these lines uh, we could be utilizing all kinds of new creative ways that people are communicating uh, you know without using names of different uh, apps or social media networks but one thing I know that happens in my neighborhood is through a through an app uh, through social media through other avenues i find out all kinds of things about what's going on in my neighborhood. And we spread all kinds of helpful messages to one another. But why aren't we using technology like that to remind one another to get our insurance checkup and to communicate with our uh, insurance agent and with you know, a lot of times when I tell people to get there, you find out what evacuation zone they live in. the, The best way I still have is to tell them to call their local emergency management office. Well, why isn't there a a social media network <laughs> where disaster professionals and, and, and uh, consumers are having ongoing conversations about uh, insurance checkups and evacuation zones. I mean, you get what I'm saying. It, mm-hmm. there, there are ways that we could regalvanize the conversation in new creative ways to tangibly move the needle on people actually taking action on things to make themselves more resilient.
0: Do you still get the people in society who when these storms come say that oh dr nab you folks at the weather channel and you meteorologists you're all just trying to strike up fear in us and mm-hmm. you're just trying to make us afraid and do you still get that and how do you address that
1: well i got it this year remember remember how quiet august was mm-hmm. right in the atlantic basin when we got uh, near the end of august Uh, as we were approaching it, and it looked like we were going to have, you know, one of the quietest Augusts we've ever had, I kept saying, this is a La Nina year. Uh, We've learned from the past that the second half of a hurricane season can be much different than the first half. Please don't let your guard down, because I was getting really concerned that people had written off this hurricane season and were not gonna do the things they needed to do to get ready. Um, And that we were leaving ourselves even more vulnerable than usual. Uh, so I got a lot of that. Uh, and then, you know, I, I I wish, and I even said this on the air in August, I hope that this is a sign that this hurricane season is gonna under-deliver, you know, like 2013 did. You know, we've had years that have done that, but history teaches us in La Nina years that uh, now the chances are unfortunately pretty high that we're still gonna have a bad season at some point. Um, you know, it, I, I think I've gotten that kind of reaction throughout my career. I think a lot of us in the disaster resilience community, disaster safety, we get that. But when we're talking about disasters, people say, well, you're just trying to scare me. You're just trying to uh, you know, promote your message because that's what you do. But I think all of us involved in this really do have at the core of why we're doing this trying to get people to just take a few minutes out of their day a few hours out of their year to do some simple things to keep them from dying in a disaster or from their home being destroyed or from them having financial disaster and so I I try to explain why what's in it for them right in in what I'm saying so we, we have to put this in terms that people can understand and I think if you if you keep it personal and you, you keep front of mind the challenges and the obstacles that they might be facing in doing the things that you're telling them to do. A lot of, t- a lot of times when we're doing outreach and education, we say, well, you just need to do this, but there are, there are obstacles and there are impediments that people have. We need to understand the world that they're living in individually and meet them where they live and help them through it and talk them through what they can do with the ultimate goal of keeping them safe their family safe, their kids safe, and avoiding financial disaster. So, if we keep it personal and don't just, you know, spew our jargon and our science and our uh, knowledge, and really talk to people in a personal way, uh, and I'm trying to get even better at that, understanding the, the the plight that people are in and why they're not able to or haven't yet taken the time to do some things, and and help them through that. I, I think on a personal level, going back to what we said at the beginning, this is all. This is all personal. This is all about people. We've got to meet people where they live.
0: Dr. Knapp, give us three to five things, and I'm sure you've covered them throughout our conversation, but give us three to five things that we should be doing right now because the reality is as much as we don't want to admit it or as much as we dislike it, there will be more Ian's, right? There will be more Charlie's. There will be more of these events. Give us three to five things we should be doing in light of that fact.
1: Okay. Okay. Collectively, let's all get everybody to have an insurance checkup every year. Now, there's all of us. Either if we're not doing it, we need to do it. If we have an ability to tell people and help people do that, let's make that happen. Get everybody needs to have an insurance checkup every year. That could make a lot of difference. Number two, we all need to work on the flood insurance gap. I mean, I, I know it's this long-standing issue. Uh, We got to get insured for flood It's a separate policy and all that But we're spinning our wheels We're not getting anywhere We need to reinvent how we fix The flood insurance gap uh, in this country And then number three Evacuation compliance from those who can And evacuation assistance for those who can't We got to get everybody out When storm surge approaches When the next Ian is on the way
0: Is there anything else, Dr. Nab, that you want to share with our audience?
1: Well, don't stop learning and don't stop learning about other disciplines and other areas of expertise. Hang out with people that don't have your job title. Hang out with people who got a different major in college from you. And, you know, you know, lifelong learning, that's kind of a cliche. But uh, I think that is becoming even more important in our collective lines of work because, uh, as much as we've made progress in understanding disaster resilience and, and you know, people hear about disaster resilience a lot more than they used to, we, we got to not be complacent about the progress we're making and realize there's so much more to do, but we have to do it uh, locking arms with people in various disciplines and uh, making sure, as we said earlier, that the public You know, the people that we want to ultimately do all this for, for their benefit, that they hear from all of us the same things that they need to be doing. We make it simple and actionable for people, uh, at least easier. None of this is simple, but make it easier and more actionable for the individual out there that we're all working to serve.
0: To borrow from an old proverb, it really does take a village. It takes a village to ensure that uh, we are safe when Ians come our way.
1: It it does require that we all help one another. I mean, you know, uh, when we talk about uh, getting ready for every hurricane season and you can model this uh, when you talk about getting ready for any kind of of disaster, we talk about, you know, uh, in our hurricane strong program that we've had for years is, uh, you know, planning for evacuation and getting supplies and getting your insurance checkup and Uh, doing things to make your home stronger. But the last one in that is help someone else, right? You got to help other people. And, you know, some people need our help. Uh, Those of us who are at the forefront of this, those of us who have our disaster plan and our insurance policy and our strong home, if if you have your house in order, so to speak, you're never done because the next homework assignment is to go help someone else who has uh, a lack of resources or hasn't heard uh, or just needs help getting themselves as ready as you are. Let's help those who are not as ready as ourselves, who are not as fortunate as ourselves.
0: I think that's a perfect place to uh, wrap up this disaster discussion. Dr. Rick Knapp, hurricane expert at the Weather Channel, I wanna thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, learned a great deal. And I'm sure our audience did as well. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: And thank you, Amon, for having me. And I can't tell you how many things I have learned from IBHS and all the experts there and that you work with. And I look forward to continue uh, to learning from all of you and following your example on a number of ways that can help people be more resilient. Thanks for everything you all do.
0: And thank you, Dr. Nab, And thank you, folks, for listening and watching the Disaster Discussions podcast. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions Podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at IBHS.org slash Disaster Discussions Podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disaster Safety and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.